Hebrews 11. We're looking at a message entitled Something Better. Something Better. Now, something that I love is when you go to a restaurant and the restaurant has complimentary food, right? As soon as you sit down, they bring you those hot, thin, crispy tortilla chips and homemade salsa, or maybe that fresh, hot sourdough bread that's crispy on the outside, but soft on the inside. And they give you some butter, some olive oil. You know, I don't know why all my illustrations are about food, but it's just how it is. But this is often how you can tell. Listen, it's often how you can tell. Have you ever go to a Mexican food restaurant? First of all, if they don't give chips and salsa, you should get up and leave, okay? <laughs> but the second thing is oftentimes by their chips and salsa, you can tell how good the entree that is coming is going to be. Now, it's crazy, though, how many chips you can eat before a meal uh, even comes out, and you're like, I'm already full, and I haven't even ordered. But I have this memory ingrained in my head. Whenever we'd go out to eat, whether it was the chips or the bread or whatever else, there was one place. It's not here anymore. It used to be called Las Cascadas. It was a Mexican food restaurant. On their chip basket that they brought you, there was a little like uh, quesadilla strips that you could also have with it. Anyway, that gets me excited. But imagine like complimentary quesadillas. It's awesome. But I have this memory in my head growing up. Whenever we'd go, my mom would always say, always, without fail, she would say, don't fill up. She'd always use those three words. Don't fill up on chips. Don't fill up on bread. And she'd always say that. And we'd always roll our eyes and say, but they're good. And I can't stop eating them. But as good as those chips were, or as good as that bread is, there was always something better coming. And so my mom would always say, don't, don't fill up so that you don't then miss out on the better. And we know from the Bible that the best is yet to come. Has God created the earth for you and I to enjoy? Absolutely. But there is a better place coming for us. God is preparing us a place to live for eternity and it's going to be epic. But some people fill up on the chips now and it will affect eternity later. Now, this is why over and over again, the Bible instructs us to look up and look forward. Right? Jesus was all about not the kingdoms on earth, but what? The kingdom of heaven. He said, don't store up for yourselves treasures on this earth. Don't fill up now. He said, store up your treasures in heaven because it will be something better. The promise of scripture is that there is something better coming our way for the Christian. Now, within our By Faith series in this Hall of Faith, we left off last time talking about the second phase of Abraham's life. And that is when Abraham and Sarah trusted God with the how uh, and the promised son in their old age. You guys remember that from last week? So you'll notice verses 13 through 16 is where we're going to be at tonight. There's a little pause. There's a little break. He'll get to the third part of Abraham's life. Look in your Bibles, look at verse 17. We're not going to be there tonight, but not till next week. He talks about Abraham, uh, potent, not potentially, being asked to sacrifice Isaac. It was his test of faith. We'll get into it next week. But in between phase two and phase three of Abraham's life, 
we see that the author of Hebrews pauses and he talks about all of those in the hall of faith as a collective group. And so during our time tonight, we're going to see uh, three qualities that the people in the hall of faith possessed as they lived their life by faith and as they waited for something better. So let's read our passage today. Look in your Bibles, Hebrews 11, starting at verse 13, and we'll read down to verse 16, okay? The Bible says this, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better. Everyone say better. That is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would bless your word as we study it, as we dive in and we tear it apart and put it back together and look at what you've spoke to us. God, we pray that it would be life-changing. It would not just be a good Bible study, but it would be one that would transform our life. And we pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen. Well, the three qualities tonight I want you to note down Within our passage, number one is that they, being those in the hall of faith, they embraced his promises. They embraced his promises. We find this in verse 13. All of the people in the hall of faith have died. All of them. There's no one that we will read about in our series that are still living on earth. But they died in faith. Look at verse 13. Trusting in the promises that God had given them. These all died, we're told, not having received the complete fulfillment of God's promises, but rather they saw them afar off. Verse 13 said that they, having seen them afar off. What, what is them? What's the promises of God? Now, this wasn't to say that they died without his promises, but that they did not yet see the, the whole fulfillment of them. 1 Peter 1.9 says, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Meaning that when you die, your faith ends. Did you know that? Death is the end of your faith because when you wake up, you, when you breathe your last here and you, then you breathe your first in heaven, faith is no longer needed. And for these who died in faith, meaning they were, they were trusting God, they didn't need to trust them they, once they got there because they, they saw the fulfillment of their salvation, there were still some things on earth that they had not yet seen come true. Let's take Abraham, for example. God promised Abraham, he said, get out of your country and I'm going to bless you. Remember, we, we looked at that a couple weeks ago. He said, leave your family, that would be your relatives, and go to a land that I will show you. Why? Because he said, I'm going to make you a great nation. 
from your seed will come an innumerable amount of people and that the whole world will be blessed through your line. Now, during his earthly life, Abraham never saw that come to pass. He didn't see that come to pass, but what did he do? He trusted in God's promises. And though he couldn't physically see them, he still died in faith, died trusting in the promises of God. The Bible says here that he was assured of them. Notice verse 13 in your Bibles. Not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured. The saints of old were persuaded and convinced in what they could not see. And that brings us back to the very first study we had in the book of Hebrews about the faith being the substance and the confidence of things that we have not yet seen. But how did they have such assurance? How did they know? How did they know that God would come through on what he promised? Well, it's because God is a promise keeper. We looked at last week that God cannot lie. It would, it would go against his very nature. When he makes you a promise, he will keep it. And a promise is really only as good as the faithfulness and ability of the promise giver, right? It, o- it only depends on, is the person who promised, first of all, can you trust them? And second of all, can they even do what they said? Right, you might trust me, maybe not. But let's say I, I promise you that after tonight, all of you will get $1,000. Now, you might, I might be someone trustworthy, but I don't have the type of money to give everyone $1,000. And so you would be extremely, at least you should be, if I ever said that to you, you should be extremely skeptical that I would be able even to fulfill that promise. Why? Because a promise given is based upon someone's trustworthiness and ability. And so when someone who has a good reputation promises you, you're more apt to trust them. Like for example, if you had a warranty on an iPhone, do you guys know what Apple Care is? Apple Care is something you can sign up for. Now, the reason you would buy the Apple Care is because you would trust that if something happens to your phone, and you signed and you paid for it, that Apple would stay true to their sign, their side of the contract. But if you ever had a bad experience with Apple, then you would hesitate to trust what they say. But you see, for the saints of old, they knew God was not only trustworthy, but that God was all powerful and that what he said is what he would do. And so because of this assurance, look back at verse 13, they not only had assurance, but they then embraced the promises of God. Though they were not able to receive all of them, they didn't know how the nation of Israel would happen. They would be watching from heaven. Abraham had promised to him that the Messiah would come through his line. But did he see Jesus come? Just from a different vantage point from heaven looking down. But when he was still on earth, the Bible says that they, not just Abraham, but the rest, they embraced the promises of God. This means to welcome and receive. The idea of embracing is not just to receive as true, but it's to draw to oneself. It's kind of the difference from maybe acknowledging someone. You guys ever give the head nod? 
little, little head nod. It's just an acknowledgement. You're there. Hey, right? That is different than if you saw a friend that you hadn't seen for five years and you guys were close. If, you, if that person was to get off the plane after five years of not seeing them, you wouldn't just be like, hey. No, you would embrace them. You would bring them close. And the Bible says here that, that the saints of old, they, they embraced the promises of God. It wasn't just like, yeah, I think you could do it. No, it's that they based their life upon what they could not see. And see, you and I, in a way, are to do the same thing. But rather than looking forward to the promises of God, you and I actually look back, right? We look back to the cross. We look back to the fulfilled promise of God in salvation, and we are to embrace his promises. But listen, to embrace them, you first have to know them. You cannot embrace a promise that you do not know. And the Bible is full of the promises of God. But secondly, it's not just enough to know them. It's not just an uh, acknowledgement. No, it is an embrace, which means step two would not just be knowing them, but step two would be memorizing them, committing them to memory. And then the third step would be to remind yourself of the promises of God. How you embrace God's promises is to number one, know them, to memorize them, and then to remind yourself of them. If you want to live a life by faith, you must embrace the promises of God with all three steps. Oh, I know God's promises. Yeah, but do you have them memorized? Can you bring them up in a moment of difficulty, a moment of sadness? Do you remind yourself of them? You might have known of them during Swordsman Club or Swordsman Club, the Swordsman uh, type of, yeah, Bible verse memorization. But what about now? Or is that something from the past? Or do you still remind yourself of the promises of God? See, we are to embrace the promises of our faithful promise keeper. Number two, they not only embraced the promises of God, but were told that they confessed their current status. They confessed their status. Notice the second half or even third, half, third part of verse 13. It says that they not only were assured and then embraced the promises of God, but because of that, they then had the confidence to confess themselves as strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. You see, they were able to confess. This, this idea of confession is not like what you and I think about confession of sin. This is a declaration, an open declaration. It's a professment. It is to, it is to do it without shame. To confess is the idea of declaring. And what did they declare? Well, look in your Bibles. Look at verse 13. That they were strangers and pilgrims. This is exactly what we've been talking about on Sundays, right? In our series in 1 Peter, about being a stranger and pilgrim on the earth. You boys good? Yeah, you guys listening? Okay. So strangers and pilgrims. This is what they confessed themselves as. They said, I don't belong here. 
they would say, I am from another world. And they say, oh, are you, that's because you moved, right? Oh, Abraham, you were from that country of Ur. You were, from, you were from Mesopotamia. You were from somewhere else. But you see, he wasn't talking about where he was from, but where he was going to be. We've been learning about this on, oh, there you go. We talked about confession already. It means to make an open declaration. But we've been talking about this on Sundays in 1 Peter. 1 Peter 2.11 says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. See, Jesus lived here, but he didn't live here as if he was always going to be here. Jesus lived with a mission-oriented type of mindset. That's why he, he told a lot of different people that he was not of this world. Even Pilate, when he had that conversation, he said he was not of this world. And you and I, we are to declare our status, not just to hide it, not just to hide like we know secretly, or at least at church, like, yeah, you know, I'm, I am, I'm confessing myself as a, as a sojourner, meaning I, this is not my home. But do we live like it? You see, they not only declared it, but they lived like it. Uh, there in verse 15 or 14, it says, if you, if you call yourself this, then it's clear that you are declaring of yourself of a homeland. And what, what homeland do you think the author of Hebrews is talking about in verse 14? What do you guys think? Yeah, he's talking about heaven. He's talking about our eternal home, which is, of course, with Jesus. This is something that they looked forward to. This is something that they declared that they didn't belong here. But notice this, look, looking at verse 15. It says, truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had an opportunity to return. This gives us the key. Okay, if they had focused on where they had come from, rather on where they were going to, then it's likely they would have said, you know what, let's just go back. I know, I know we were supposed to leave Ur and, and not look back, but let's just go back. You see, for them, they were focused on something else. They were focused, of course, on heaven, which brings us to the third quality is that they desired a better home. Verse 16, they desired a better home. They not only embraced the promises of God, though they couldn't see them, they not only confessed their status and they lived as if this wasn't their home, but number three, they desired a better home. Verse 16 says, but now they desire a better that is a heavenly country. If you're taking notes, that word desire means to long for or to strive after, to exert much energy and effort towards. Not just to look to, but to long for. It implies that there's action behind it. Let me, let me give you an example. This word desire there in verse 16, it's the desire of those who would be engaged. They would long for that wedding day. They would long that they might be with one another. And that happens. Have you guys ever known anyone who gets engaged? Right? During that engagement season, they're thinking about one thing. And that's just, let's just get married. Can we just, you know, they, they, and they're planning their wedding and there's some exciting things. 
But as it gets closer, they're like, are you guys ready? Yeah, I'm just ready. I'm ready to be married. And there's this long for, and what do they do? They don't just do nothing. You don't get engaged and then sit on your hands. No, you get engaged and then you start planning. You start planning not only for the wedding day, but your life. Where are you going to live? What are you going to do? How are you going to support yourself? All those things. And you begin to work towards it. You see, that's the idea of this, this word desire. It's not only that they wanted it, but it's that they worked toward it. They worked toward it. And because there's this present desire for heaven, it resulted in how they live their life now. Philippians 3.20 says, For our citizenship is in heaven, for which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, heaven is where we as believers ultimately belong. And in Christ, we already have that heavenly passport. We are already have the ticket in. And so we are to desire, not just to wait, but to work towards, to work towards. And then in the last couple chapters later in Hebrews 13, verse 14, he says, for here, meaning our life now, we have no continuing city. What city do you guys live in? Pomona, Pomona Chino, Ontario, Rancho. Listen, you might like your city, you might not. But it ain't going to last forever. There is no continuing city. They all will come to an end, ultimately under the reign of Jesus Christ. They will have a new beginning. But we seek the one to come. One which will endure. Have you guys ever heard of the New Jerusalem? The New Jerusalem, according to the Bible, is the city of God. And it's a city that will last forever. It's a city, you see, I don't know if you know, but we're not going to be in heaven in the sense of God's throne room forever. Did you know that? We are actually going to be living on the new earth and we are going to be then visiting and on, at some point, what is described as the new Jerusalem. That's eternity. And the Bible says that that will be our home. And so we seek the one to come. And there's a realization that then is better than now. And so what the now can offer will not be as good as the then. And so it's, it's worth the sacrifices it's worth abstaining if it's worth seeking God now. But it takes, it takes, listen, it takes faith to live like that. Because we live in a world of increasing desire for instant satisfaction. And if we don't have it now, then we don't even want it. If it's not coming prime two days, if it's not coming on and going to be delivered at my door, then just forget about it. We want everything now. And, 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 and that's just the culture we, that we live in. But listen, there is benefit into waiting, into investing into not our world now, but as Jesus said, to store up for ourselves treasure in heaven. But that's hard. Why? Because we have a flesh. We have our body that just wants 
to give in to the appetites now and to be entangled in the affairs of this life, but we are to desire a better home, okay? So those are the three qualities, but let's look at the end of verse 16. We're told here, we're given a therefore. You guys see that? Verse 16 says, therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. The second part of verse 16 is interesting. It tells us that God is not ashamed. It's, it's in the present tense. God is not ashamed to be called their God. So all the saints of Hebrews 11, God says, God would say, I am proud to be called their God. He's not ashamed. Now, this is presently. He says, I am, not I was when they were living. This is the idea that though they have died, Abraham, Moses, Noah, the different people that we've been learning about, they are not dead, they are living. That's why in the Bible, even after when God appeared to Moses and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were long dead, long dead, what did he say? He didn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What did he say? I am currently the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is something that actually Jesus had brought up uh, with a group of people called the Sadducees. You guys ever heard of the Sadducees? So there's two groups of people that Jesus often dealt with. They were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they were opposed to one another. They were both religious leaders, but they differed on one major thing. They differed on the belief in the physical bodily resurrection of people who followed God. You can always remember which group is which because you can remember, remember the Sadducees because they didn't believe in the resurrection. They believe when you died, you were just dead. That's it. And so you can always remember that they were the Sadducees because they are sad, you see, because there's no resurrection, okay? So there's, there's a little something for you. So they were talking to Jesus and they thought they had him trapped. They posed a question and they wanted to, they knew Jesus believed in the resurrection. And so what did they do? Well, they began talking and Jesus brings up that very topic. He says, but concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? See, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And so look back in your Bibles. Now look at verse 16. This is what he's saying. He's saying, therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. And I love this picture of God's association with man. That because of the way that they lived, God said, that one's mine. He said he wasn't ashamed. This word ashamed, it means obviously feelings of shame, embarrassment, and even remorse. You guys know what it means to feel shame and be, be ashamed because of someone else in your life? You know, when you are ashamed of someone in your life, you don't want to be associated with them. You don't want other people to know the relationship you have. That's why for some of you, when you get dropped off at school, you ask your mom to drop you off a block away because you don't, 
you, you feel ashamed or, or you don't want your dad to come up to the junior high room because it's not cool to have a good relationship with your parents, which is bizarre, by the way, and not true at all. And so you, you, you want distance. But God says, listen, I'm not ashamed of you. Listen, for those that live a life of faith, God says, I'm proud. I'm not ashamed. I want to be associated. I want to be connected to you. He says, I'm not ashamed to be called their God. How cool is that? You know, we always talk about it on the other end. Oh, we shouldn't live a life ashamed of God, right? Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Oh, we should live unashamed lives. But how often do we think that for some of us who claim to be Christians, but then don't live it, God, in a sense, would be have that feeling of shame, have that feeling of desire that, that we would represent him better. But for those that are not perfect, but are in pursuit of God, that live by faith, like those in the hall of faith, God says, oh, that one's mine. Oh, I'm proud of them. I see that they are looking towards heaven and investing for the eternal home. And then he says, verse 16, for he has prepared a city for them. He has prepared a city for them. Do you guys see that? Prepared. This is God. So God says, all these saints in, in the hall of faith, which you and I are, in, are not in the hall of faith yet, but we are well on our way if we're walking with Jesus. God says, I have prepared a place for them. And this is very similar to what Jesus assures the disciples in John 14. When he says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. A precious passage a moment that Jesus was happy, having with his disciples. This took place during that last supper. And Jesus was telling them that he was gonna be going away, that he was gonna be crucified, killed, murdered, but that he would raise the third day, but he would be going back to heaven. And he assures them, he says, don't let your, your, your heart be troubled by this. He says, if you believe in God, he says, believe in me. He says, I'm leaving, but I'm not doing nothing. Okay, listen, when, when Jesus ascended to heaven, it wasn't for him necessarily that his work was over. Yes, the work of salvation on the cross, he was able to say, it is finished. But Jesus is in heaven right now, according to the Bible, preparing a place for those that follow him. You ever seen those uh, like home makeover shows? You guys ever seen them? Maybe you guys know about, maybe your, all your moms I'm sure are, are obsessed with, right? Fixer Upper. And they're good. They're, they're, some of them are fun to watch for sure. I can only take so much, but <laughs> you know, those people Obviously, they're getting paid, but they're putting all their effort into preparing this place, and they want them to experience that when 
when, uh, whether it's the, the truck that moves or the signs that move of what it used to look like, man, they so desire that, that they're going to feel like they're at home. There's that anticipation building and building. I believe that God has a desire for us. That God is preparing individually and collectively a place for us to be one day. And as great as Joanna Gaines is, Jesus is much better at preparing a place. So now, what do we do? Well, we embrace his promises. We don't just acknowledge them afar off, but we, we take them as our own. We confess our status as strangers and pilgrims, knowing that though we can enjoy God's world, that this is not the end. And that we desire the better, our heavenly home. And so tonight, we're going to spend some time in worship. And I want to encourage you guys to, to connect with the Lord. As we open in prayers, we've been studying his word. We're going to have a communion, the communion elements out tonight. And remember, that is, that is a point of connection that Jesus has given us. We so easily forget... And we can start, listen, filling up ourselves in a sense with the chips of the world, okay, the sourdough bread that the world has to offer. And it's good. It's good. It's going to leave us empty. And there's better coming. There's the entree. And if we hold out, if we continue on, if we hold fast, the better is coming. And you see, when we remember what Jesus did for us, then we remember what we have to look forward to. You see, communion is not just about looking back, but the Bible says that when we take communion, what we are doing is actually as well declaring his return. Because notice what Jesus says. Look what Jesus says here. He says, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Listen, this is what Jesus wants tonight. He just wants to be with you. And so I encourage you, the one thing that will separate you from Jesus is sin. So confess it to him. Come to him. Let him know. Don't take communion without confessing sin. Get right with God. Tonight, if you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus, do that. Do that tonight. Don't wait. And as we worship, may we think about not just the place that we're going, but the person that we will one day get to be with 100%. Now we get a, a glimpse through prayer, through word, through worship. We almost get that, that preview of what spending eternity with God is going to be like. And so let's press in tonight uh, to him. Lord, we come before you and we thank you for this time. God, we ask that you would be glorified in our worship and that your Holy Spirit would have reign in our hearts. Lord, that we wouldn't put up any walls. We wouldn't put up any blockades within our own life towards you. But God, we would welcome you in to every part of our life. We would desire that you would have reign, that you would have the rule. And God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for that cup tonight that represents your blood. We thank you for that bread tonight that represents your body broken for us. God, without you, 
we'd be facing eternal condemnation. We would be paying the penalty for our sins, which would be death. So we thank you that you died in our place. And we embrace your promises tonight. We confess our status here is not of this world. And we look forward to that better heavenly country, that city that you have prepared for us. Lord, help us to keep our our eyes on the prize. In Jesus' name, amen.